at some of the conclusions of our examination of the vocabulary of idolatry, not only from this second chapter, it was this second chapter that placed the issue of idolatry before us, and we examined the vocabulary of idolatry throughout the book of Jeremiah. But tonight we want to look at the motivation for idolatry, the attraction of that way of religious thought. Now, last time, we gained some understanding of the practice of idolatry in Judah and Jerusalem during the days of the prophet Jeremiah, 626 to 586 B.C. We also derived the names of the idols who were worshipped in Judah and Jerusalem, at least some of them, uh, during Jeremiah's day. We mentioned especially Baal and Chemosh, Moloch, and the Queen of Heaven, who is probably Ishtar, a Mesopotamian sex goddess. We observed the places where these idols were worshipped, the high places on hilltops in Judah and Jerusalem, as well as even having idols located in the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem Itself, And then we examined how these idols were worshipped through offerings of incense or perfume, libations or offerings of wine, animal burnt sacrifices, <clears throat> burnt sacrifices of children and infants, bodies offered for male and female sacred prostitution, or as some of the ancient versions used to say, whoring after false gods. Now tonight we want to turn our attention <clears throat> to the question, what is idolatry? Now attempting to articulate or come to some <clears throat> understanding of the motivation for idolatry or the attraction which it has <clears throat> and the ongoing reality which idolatry presents. And I've given you uh, uh, three alliterative terms, actually six alliterative, broken into three each, in order to make this uh, perhaps a little more uh, <clears throat> memorable. And the first word is substitution. What is idolatry? It is substitution. Another god is substituted or put in place of the Lord God. Now this is certainly what is found in the first commandment. Robert, could you restate the first commandment for me? Uh, you'll have no other gods but me. That was close. Audrey, could you do any better? No? Okay. First commandment. Yes. Uh, we want the word before me there. And the reason we want that is because the Hebrew is literally, we shall have no other gods Alpane, before my face. 
Now, this gives you a visual image. <clears throat> that is, you visualize the glory face of God. It, of course, does not have a human form face, but <clears throat> the glory presence of God. And <clears throat> the commandment it says you're not to put anything before his face, before his glory present face. You're not to put anything in front of his face that blocks his face from seeing you. Or, on the other side, blocks you from seeing him. Don't put anything in front of my face. Don't go in my face to God. You get it. Okay? So, <clears throat> this visual aspect of the Hebrew there. See, when we said, thou shalt have no other gods before me, it's not quite as visual as the literal Hebrew reads. <clears throat> and Hebrew really is a pictorial or visual language. God is saying, <clears throat> something is going to block me from your face, block me from your attention. Something is going to get <clears throat> between me and you, <clears throat> and therefore you are not to substitute any God in between us. You are not to put any God that blocks me out between your face and my face. Now, this substitution is, in fact, an adulteration. It is as if one spouse would place another spouse between himself or herself and their true spouse. And that is the reason that idolatry is described as adultery by the prophets. It is an introduction of another love, another amour. It is placing a paramour between oneself and God. For you are to love the Lord your God and him only are you to serve. So, <clears throat> idolatry is adultery, namely spiritual adultery, but it is adultery nonetheless. It is the introduction of a substitute into a relationship of intimacy, spiritual intimacy in this instant, but as uh, precious and as sweet as the intimacy of marital union. That's the reason the Bible speaks of that relationship in those terms so frequently. Now, the second word on your outline is the word superstition. <clears throat> Idolatry is superstition. <clears throat> now, here, <clears throat> with the use of idols is usually <clears throat> accompanied the use of magic, incantations, spells, witchcraft, casting of omens. And one of the favorite <clears throat> ancient pastimes, the superstitious reading of entrails. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> in pagan idolatry, and in the idolatry of Judah and Jerusalem at the time of Jeremiah, when an animal was sacrificed to the pagan god, 
the priests would often read the innard, the visceral innards of the beast, the entrails. And they would then pretend to discern certain uh, events and certain circumstances of the offerer's life or even of uh, the uh, future of that person's career. One of the most famous organs in this process of reading the entrails was the liver. In a divination called oraspacy, reading the liver. Now, why did the pagans of the ancient world favor the liver? Because they believed that the blood came from the liver. In other words, the source of the life of the animal was in the liver, not in the heart as we understand it anatomically. And so they would particularly carefully examine the liver in order to project the future, in order to utter omens, etc., And in fact, archaeologists have actually discovered clay models of these ancient uh, literary uh, liver fetishes. Uh, They have little Akkadian markings on them, uh, obviously uh, labeling the lobes of the liver in such a way as if it falls out this way when the animal is slain, then you know what to project uh, out of the case. Well, this kind of superstition is uh, quite... You quite, quite common to idolatry, particularly idolatry that uh, 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 majors in magic spells. Now, the third word there is syncretism. Now, syncretism is a word that means to mix things up. And here, with idolatry, we're mixing the worship of the gods. We're combining worship of the Lord God in Jeremiah's time with the worship of Baal, the worship of Chemosh, the worship of Moloch, and so on. In other words, since the name Baal, as we pointed out last week, can mean Lord or husband, syncretism between the worship of the Lord God Jehovah and Baal was quite easy in Israel and in Judah. The people of Judah would offer their sacrifices to the Lord, and they would actually be worshiping Baal as their Lord with their sacrifices. So this syncretism of combining the religion of Jehovah with the religion of Baal made it uh, very easy for a person to be an idolater and yet to claim in some outward way that he was a worshiper of Jehovah, the God of Moses, or the God of Sinai, or the God of Israel and Judah. Several years ago, the very famous popular archaeology magazine, which led with a bold uh, header, and uh, blasted on the front cover of that uh, journal, uh, Did God Have a Wife? And in the article, I proceeded to examine the remnants of uh, idolatry in uh, Israel that had been excavated, and they had a couple of shrines which were dedicated possibly to Baal, 
But they found fertility goddesses there, replicas of the Asherim or the Asherah, the consort or the concubine of Baal. And therefore, they summarized or they theorized that the Jews actually believed that Jehovah had a wife and that this wife was depicted in terms of the Asherah. Now, that would be, of course, a liberal way of looking at the evidence, but a straightforward way of looking at the evidence would be that this Asherah figurine was, in fact, a consort of Baal who was worshipped under the notion of Lord or husband of Israel and Judah. And therefore, what they may have, in fact, discovered is an altar which demonstrates this syncretism that we're describing, namely the ability of the people of Israel and Judah, when they were worshiping Baal, to to look as if they were worshiping the Lord God Jehovah, because they could use the same vocabulary. He is my Lord. He is my divine husband, etc., This combination of uh, putting gods together was a way of of, uh, bringing cultures together, the way of uh, uniting uh, different religious notions. And uh, missionaries who went out in the 19th century ran into this uh, repeatedly. That is, they would bring the gospel of the one true God to uh, native cultures, and the natives would embrace it, but then they would bring to it all of their pagan ritual and ceremony. In other words, they wouldn't completely surrender all of what they had before uh, endorsed. They would simply combine it. The Christian God or the white man's God or whatever language you want to that that was just another God that we needed to placate. So we'll, you know, we'll cover all our bets and make sure we worship them all. This is particularly true in Roman Catholic evangelism and is still quite common in Central America and uh, Roman Catholic countries where the priests will tolerate the uh, sacrificing of uh, chickens on the stone steps of the cathedrals is because of the pagan uh, attempt to placate the demons. And yet, you see, these are people who will attend the Mass on Sunday morning. Uh, I know this because my sister, who was a missionary in Guatemala, saw it and could testify to it. All right, so syncretism uh, with respect to uh, idolatry is not something which has completely disappeared. Now, the next word... is the word displacement. And you might think that this is the same as substitution, but although there is a similarity, there is an emphatic difference here. God is displaced and replaced with an idol. The nuance is that God has been rejected. So this is an emphatic uh, dismissal of God been replaced by something other entirely. Now the word declension. Idolatry is declension. That is, it is a downturn from the pure worship of the Lord God to prostration before a physical object. It is a regression from communion with the invisible 
Lord God, who is an immaterial spirit, to communion with an idol, which is a material thing. Now, this suggests, you see, that the highest worship that man can render is worship to a pure spirit. And in fact, the Bible tells us that God is a pure spirit. John chapter 4 in particular underscores that point. But in this declension, that aspiration to the highest adoration of the purest spirit is reduced to prostration before a created object. It is a regression or a decline in the magnificence of the spiritual order. Try to, shall we say, reduce it to the level of the created. And finally, the word degradation. Idolatry is degradation. For in reducing the Lord God to a created object, we are worshiping the uncreated God and Lord as a creature. We are making him in our image. It is an insult. It is an insult to his dignity. It is an insult to his majesty. It is an insult to his being to degrade him to the level of what he is not is a blasphemous insult. Well, if that were not enough to uh, warn us to turn away from idolatry, let's consider the reversal that is involved in idolatry. And here I'm talking about a reversal of order, a reversal of nature. This is related to what we have said about idolatry as degradation. But the dynamic of idolatry is a reversal. Idolatry is an upside-down paradigm. The creature worships what he created. That's the reversal that is involved in idolatry. The creature does not worship the creator. He worships what his hands have made. He is turning the world upside down. He is turning the paradigm of religion upside down. He is reversing the proper order of things. And the extension of this, the extension of this reverse paradigm, perverts all of life. Infants are burned up as sacrifices. That's a world turned upside down. That's an upside down, the complete reverse paradigm. Sexual prostitution is an act of worship. That's a complete upside down paradigm. Extermination of whole cultures in the name of gods. That's a complete upside down paradigm. Wars of aggression and terrorism as acts of religious devotion. That's a complete upside down paradigm. You've turned the world upside down. Ultimately, idolatry authorizes the dynamic of idolatry is to legitimate good as evil 
and evil as good. That's the upside-down paradigm that idolatry spawns. It's exactly what Isaiah says in chapter 5, verse 20. You call evil good and good evil. Idolatry perverts that. Idolatry teaches that. Idolatry creates that. Once you have an idolatrous culture, your life isn't worth a plug nickel, ultimately. Just ask the Jews of the Holocaust. The idolatry of a fascist state. And ask all those who died in the Gulag in Russia. The estimates of 28 million. The idolatry of a communist state. And then ask those who died in the Cultural Revolution in the 60s in China. The estimates, and they're not even sure, 60 million. 60 million human beings. You know about the killing fields in Cambodia and Laos. Three million. That's what communism is. It's murder. It's genocide. It's idolatry. It's idolatry of the state. (coughs) But it is a religion. Do you realize that the apologists of communism... In its heyday, both Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Stalin believed that communism was the new era religion of the world. It was something to be honored like a god. And in fact, they even developed an eschatology of communism. And you thought I invented the word. The upside-down paradigm, then, of idolatry is an upside-down life paradigm. And it's ultimately derived from idolatry, from worshiping the creature rather than the creator. That's not my statement. That's Romans 1, 25. That's Paul's statement. The absolutization of the creature the almighty creature, the almighty state, the almighty church, the almighty athletic hero, the almighty Hollywood celebrity. We even call them icons, don't we? We even call them demigods, don't we? We even have rallies for rock stars in which they're treated as if they're some kind of thing out of the sky. And the performance of the teeny boppers as they weave and bob and bow before those rock stars, it's as if they are fetishes of worship and adoration. This is idolatry. It is idolatry of music. It is idolatry of rhythm. But it is idolatry. And, as many of you know, it is ugly. It is ugly. 
Now, the next thing we want to note from the outline is the relational reversal. Now, we noted the dynamic of reversal with this upside-down paradigm. Good becomes evil, evil becomes good. It becomes good to worship idols. It's evil not to worship idols. That's, of course, what cost Christians their lives in during the Roman Empire because they wouldn't worship the gods of the empire. So they threw them in the, in the Colosseum. They threw them to the lions. They executed them, put them to death because they wouldn't pour out the libations to the emperor. They wouldn't offer wine to the emperor. Off with their heads. All right, so this is the dynamic of idolatry, this reversal. But now we want to talk about the relational aspect of this reversal. In idolatry, the relationship between man and the God is the primary dimension of this phenomenon. This is what pagan religion is. It is an idolatry, even if it doesn't use images or icons. Nonetheless, it is a form of paganism. Now, that little arrow there between man and God, small g, should be labeled gives to. Man gives to God. Notice the relation. The relation initiate is initiated by man. It is what he gives to the God in order to extract some good, some benefit from the deity, from the God. This extraction, this I will do this, I will perform this act is a deed that will gain me a good thing from the God. So I am acting or performing or working in order to gain a particular blessing or good from the God. Do a work, receive a good, receive a blessing, receive a benefit. In other words, what man is going to do under idolatry is earn a good from the God. He's going to deserve a good from the God. He's going to merit a blessing from the God. So that idolatry is a works merit paradigm. It is attempting to gain something, deserve something, earn something, be worthy of something, because you have done that which is worthy, deserving, meritorious, and the God will respond. He will give you the blessing because of your merit. He will give you the reward because of your worthiness. Idolatry is a works merit paradigm. So you worship the God. You adore the God. You're devoted to the God in order to gain or merit or earn or deserve the good blessing or benefit which you hope the God will bestow. All right, summarizing this, the relationship between man and the God in idolatry 
the, <clears throat> the relationship is that man gives in order to get. Man gives in order to receive. And <clears throat> the weight or the value of what he gives will indeed merit or earn the measure of what he receives. All pagan religion believes that this is how you benefit from the religious relationship. It is a works merit paradigm. Now, the contrast between pagan religion or pagan idolatry and biblical religion, Old or New Testament religion, is that the arrow proceeds from God to man. The relationship is God, and now you can write over that little arrow, God gives to man. Notice where the priority is. Notice where the initiative lies. Man receives the good or the benefit as a gift from God. No act or deed is required to receive the gift or the good which is received. Man does not work. Once again, that is not my phrase. Does not work. That is Paul's phrase in Romans 4. Man does not work. His work does not obtain. It does not abstract the good gift from the God. There is therefore no earning or deserving or meriting that will secure the good gift. The biblical religion is a faith-grace paradigm. Notice, the very opposite of the pagan idolatry. Works merit paradigm, antithesis, faith-grace paradigm. Then you worship, adore, give you devotion in response to the gift received. The good that has been granted to you as a gift. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have? What good do you have? What do you have that you have not received? You see, biblical religion is a religion of grace. It's a religion of a gift. It's a religion of you received something from God. You didn't earn it. You didn't merit. You didn't deserve it. He gave it to you. Freely. And you receive it thankfully. And you know that that reception was due to God's grace and his grace alone. So if pagan religion gives to get, biblical religion gets from what is given. If pagan religion gives to receive, biblical religion receives what is given. Idolatry will turn the relationship between God and man upside down. It will reverse it. It will make man, put man in the driver's seat and make God subject 
to him. God subject to man's merits. God subject to man's worthiness. God subject to man's deserving. God subject to man's giving to the God. Christianity, biblical religion, says you can't give anything to God. For you have nothing to give. What could you give? It would mean God owed you. Paul, quoting the book of Job in Romans 11. What could you do that would make God your debtor? You could do nothing. No work of your alleged merit, no work of your deserving. You are simply a vessel to receive what God did for you. You come to God with an empty hand. You come to God and he fills your life. You don't come to God with your life as if he's now going to pat you on the head and say what a good boy and girl you are and therefore I will give you your reward. No. You don't have the right idea of God at all if that's how you think. You act towards your creator. All right, so we notice that idolatry is a fairly complex reality, not only in terms of its dynamic, but also in terms of its relational paradigm. But it is also iconic. And here we want to notice the contrast with the an-iconic Religion of the Bible. If you'll turn to Deuteronomy 4.12. Deuteronomy 4.12. Frank, do you have it? The Lord spoke to you. Out of the fire, you heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. You saw no form. This passage is indicating to you that the form of God is aniconic. That is, it has no form. It cannot be represented with an icon, with an image. For the Greek word icon means image. This is stipulated by the second commandment. We noticed that the first commandment forbids any substitution, placing any other God between us and the face of the Lord God Jehovah. But the second commandment says that you shall make no idol, no graven image in the older versions, no idol or likeness for the purpose of worship. An icon is an image or a likeness. 
An icon is a form. It can be a statuary form. It can be a form made out of porcelain. It can be made out of clay. It can be made out of gold. It can be made out of silver. It can be a form or an image which is metallic. A graven image, as we outlined last week, or a molten image. But it also can be a picture. It also can be a painted icon. It can be a form which is described in terms of a a painting of a saint or of the Lord or of any of the patriarchs, etc. So this statement in the second commandment that you are not to make an idol, that is a graven image, or any likeness of anything, any image of anything that is in heaven above, earth beneath, or the waters under the earth, you do not make that for the purpose of worshiping it, bowing down to it. You can't split this commandment. You can't split this hair like the Eastern Orthodox people do and say, well, we're not worshiping statues. We're not worshiping graven images. The commandment says you're not to make any likeness of an image to worship it. So that includes images or icons of saints, images and icons of apostles, images and icons of Christ and the Virgin Mary. You don't get off the hook of the condemnation of the second commandment just because you think you split the hair and said, we didn't make any statues and bow down to them. The Roman Catholics, well, yeah, they're apostate because they bow down to statues. We don't do that. We're the good guys. We only worship icons. You're not to bow down to the image of anything to worship it. Oh, well, we're not really worshiping the icon. We're worshiping what it represents. We're not really worshiping the statue of the Virgin, the Roman Catholic Church. We're worshiping what it represents. What does it represent? It represents her intercession with her son to get his attention for us. Um, You actually believe that the Virgin Mary can intercede on your behalf when your intercessor is Jesus Christ alone? There's only one mediator between God and man. Aren't you reading your Bible correctly? Oh, but this is from the tradition of the church. We don't need the Bible to defend this. At least not the Bible alone. And so in the older Roman Catholic catechisms, you didn't even have a copy of the second commandment, what we call the second commandment. The first commandment in those catechisms was, you shall not have any other gods before you. The second commandment was, don't take the name of the Lord. What happened to don't bow down to any images? Well, they didn't want to stick it in their Bibles or their catechisms because it was too obvious. Well, then how did they get ten commandments? They split the tenth commandment into two. Wasn't that neat? They keep the number ten, but they divide the tenth commandment in order to avoid writing in the Catechism the Second Commandment. How did they divide the Ten Commandment? You shall not covet. That's number nine. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That's number ten. So you see, you got two out of one in order to avoid getting one out of two. Number two. 
All right, I'm being slightly sarcastic here, but it is interesting how that commandment was buried and suppressed in the older Catholic catechisms and CC&D materials, etc. And they still defend the uh, combining of commandment one and two. So if they do print it, they will print them together. So now they actually can see it, though they're taught it's still one commandment, not two. All right, this difference between iconic and aniconic worship is underscored by what we read in Deuteronomy 4.12. You did not see any form. God has no form. He has no created form. He does not have a body as the Mormons tell you. He is not a man like we were as the Mormons tell you. He is not anthropomorphic. He has no form because he is a pure, invisible, and immaterial, incorporeal spirit. Those who worship him, worship him in that spirit and in truth. All right. I am not being sarcastic when I underscore the fact that iconic worship, that is, the worship of God through icons, and here I'm going to use the term broadly, through images, whether it's statuary or painting. The worship of God through icons is for the purpose of venerating, adoring, prostrating, and embracing those objects as objects of worship. Now, they may split hairs and say it's not the highest worship. We give the highest worship to the Trinity. But they're still venerating and adoring and prostrating themselves before images, whether painted or carved or molded. I don't know how you can escape the charge that that is worship and idolatry. Even they will use the word worship, but they will talk about it as just giving reverence to. Well, you're supposed to give reverence only to God. Yeah, but Denison, you're called Reverend Denison. Are we giving reverence to you? No, you're not giving reverence to me in the sense you're giving reverence to God. It's a title of honor. Yes, we recognize that in in relational context, it can be used as a title of honor, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about revering God. We don't call God Reverend, do we? No. All right, so this is smoke and mirrors to justify a cultic practice. In fact, it's smoke and mirrors to justify a practice of idolatry. You can call it whatever you want, but Eastern Orthodox iconography is idolatry and Roman Catholic statuary is idolatry. That's what the Reformation was all about, particularly with respect to statuary in the Roman Catholic Church. 
That's one of the things your reformers and my reformed fathers, our reformed fathers, abolished. Because they recognized that it was idolatry. You name it, whatever you want to name it. You split whatever hair. You divide this issue right down the casuistical middle. You can say dulia, hyperdulia, and latria, and you can say it until you're blue in the face. It doesn't make any difference. You're still bowing down in front of it. You can say, I'm only bowing down by what it represents, but you're not supposed to do that. God told you not to do that. God said, don't bow down before it, even before what it represents. Because you can't represent me that way. I have no form. I am formless. Don't try to give me a form. Don't try to represent me with a form. And don't try to represent anything about me or about my saints or about my grace with a form. Don't do it. Now, the clincher to this argument is the golden calf. Do you really think when the children of Israel bowed down to the golden calf that they thought that they were worshiping a bull? Do you? Do you really think that they thought Jehovah was a bull? He looked like a calf or a cow or a full-grown steer. Is that what they really thought when they were bowing down before that bull? No. They were bowing down before what that bull represented. They were worshiping Jehovah through what the bull represented. They were doing exactly what God had told them a few hours before or a few days before in that second commandment of using an image of what God represented. And the bull represented God's power, just like a mighty steer. Why? We're out here on the mountaintop worshiping this bull because he's a powerful symbol. Powerful symbol of you, Jehovah. And what does God do? He smashes his Ten Commandments into the bull, and he grinds up the powder of the bull and makes them eat it. And how many thousands are killed because they well down and worship? If they had said, well, God, we thought that you were like a bull, God would have slapped them on the wrist and said, now look, I'm going to tell you, I'm not like a bull. But no, he didn't. He destroyed them. Because they bowed down before that image, because they were doing what he had done, not under the likeness of anything. And heaven above, earth beneath, or the waters under the earth, including a bull. And don't you come back to me and say, yeah, well, we were just worshiping what it represented. So the golden calf incident is, in fact, the very story that gives the lie to this notion that you can worship an image and pretend that you're worshiping what it, God through what it represents. I'm not worshiping the bull. I'm worshiping what the bull represents. And God's fury says, I don't think so. All right, any questions about any of that? All right, we want to talk about the psychology of idolatry.
But we've come to the time for our little break, so let's take our break and we'll do our psychology lesson afterwards. All right, to the psychology of idolatry. We're here, we're trying to grasp what is its mental and emotional attraction. We must begin with the fact that it is a voluntary or willful choice. It is a voluntary act. I'm going to paraphrase an expression here from the book of Jeremiah, which will feature this voluntary aspect. When the people say we will worship idols, we will not worship God the Lord. And then I'm going to extend that paraphrase. uh, We will not worship God as he has commanded. You must understand that idolatry, though it is a delusion, is a delusion which ensnares on the basis of a willful choice. You have made a voluntary decision to prostrate yourself before the idol, to make the idol, to adore the idol, to carry the idol back around and about. Keep in mind that in many idolatrous cultures, ancient and modern, they dress the idol, they feed the idol, they bathe the idol, they speak to the idol. They take care of the idol in every way that you would take care of a living being. And so this is obviously a voluntary act, a choice of the will, a decision of what pleases the person who is doing it. It's a willful delight in idolatry. Remember the comment Jesus said, You will not come to me that you may have life. You will not. It is a willful choice. We somehow have the idea that we don't make willful choices in the 21st century. Actually, we started to get this idea in the 20th century that nobody's really responsible for the actions that they commit or perform because, in fact, we've all been determined by something else, whether it's our environment or whether it's our genes or whatever. So we could have this excuse for idolatry as, you know, I'm really not responsible for it. I was raised that way. I was born into an idolatrous cause. It is a willful choice. It's a willful choice. Nobody is compelling you to make this choice. You make this choice willingly. You will not come to me, Jesus said. You willingly will not come to me. I am not forcing you to come to me but you willingly will not come to me. It is your willful choice. Now, one of the reasons this willful choice is attractive is because it allows certain people to control or dominate other people. Idolatrous cultures always have a hierarchy. That is a priestcraft. As you go up your ladder and you become more powerful as you become the great priestess or the great high priest in the idolatrous culture. And that gives you control. It gives you control over the culture to a certain extent. It can ultimately give you absolute control. It can give you the control that the Pope had over the medieval 
empires of Europe, the Holy Roman Empire, where the chief executive officer of the government of those countries was the Pope himself. And there were popes who even went to war in order to enforce their power, to dominate that culture, to control that culture. So an idolatrous religion is a religion which is implicitly control freak oriented. They want to have you dominated by the fates that they can manipulate. And that's where the magic comes in. Magic is unto the point of keeping you under control, manipulating circumstances or bringing magic incantations and spells into your life so that you will indeed submit to the controlling individual or the controlling power. Now, sexual acts are also another way of manipulation. And the Baal cult in Jeremiah's day, in fact, the Baal cult in the whole era of the Old Testament, was extremely manipulative. We mentioned last week that Baal is a Canaanite god of the rain and the weather. He is a fertility god. All right, if you're going to manipulate the weather, if you're going to control fertility in the soil, in the earth, if you're going to make the earth blossom and grow food, then you're going to have to imitate the God. And if you're going to imitate the God, then you've got to have sexual fertility acts. That's the reason you worship Baal with prostitution. You have sacred prostitutes, male and female both. That's the reason for the worship. In other words, you're manipulating circumstances, particularly the weather, so that food will grow. And Baal becomes the way of producing this kind of perverse uh, 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 weather prognostication and weather manipulation. I should say all of the fertility cults, whether it's Baal or whether it's Ishtar or whether it's Venus and Aphrodite, all of the fertility cults are ultimately related to manipulation. Manipulation of the fates, manipulation of the future, manipulation of circumstances. The sexual act is intended to produce this release of power. Which means that the whole focus is on the self. The inversion of the self. Withdrawal of the selfish wish whether it's fantasization, whether it's fetishism, whether it's objectification, all of it is an attempt to invert the self, that is, to draw meaning into the self, to control, my self-control, to control circumstances, to dominate the other. And that means that the self is idealized. You project your own desires to the idol. The idol becomes a symbol of your self-projection. Once again, this is related to power and uh, dominance, particularly true of the sexual idolatry, power to control other human beings sexually. Self-centeredness of idolatry is apparent when you start to strip away all the embellishments. This is just a projection of one's self 
self-wishes, self-desires, self-affirmations. It's a projection onto an object. It's a projection onto another human being. It's a projection onto the cosmos. It's a projection of what you want the world to be for yourself. So you make an idol, shape something, adore something, practice something in order to satisfy yourself. Now, the, the uh, response to this, or the other side of this, is the emptiness that results. One of the interesting things about the progress of Christianity in the first three centuries, it is up to the time of Constantine when he declared Christianity a religio licita, a religion, a, a licit or legal religion. One of the uh, aspects of Christianity was that it came into Greco-Roman culture at a time when there was a sense of emptiness and angst. That is, <clears throat> the feeling that nothingness was around and before and in front of the life, and Christianity came with a message of some substantial hope, a concrete heaven. Yes, spiritual, but concrete, real, and as, as real as the glorified incarnate body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That message resonated. It resonated in that Greco-Roman culture where there was this malaise of vacuity, emptiness. There was nothing there. Well, yes, there was blood and circuses. Yes, there was the Roman legions conquering the world. Yes, there was certainly wine, women, and song, and plenty of that. There were orgies every weekend. But you see, all of it, all of it meant nothing. We went through a phase of this in the 1960s and 1970s with with the hippie uh, generation. They rebelled against everything, and they wanted free this, free that, and free everything. Free LSD, free sex, free rock concerts, etc., etc., etc. And yet out of that movement came the Jesus freaks. Those kids, those young adults who reacted against that licentiousness and said it was vacuous, it was empty, there was nothing to it. And so we can thank God for Chuck Smith in that regard, that he saw a way to reach them and brought them to the gospel. And in that regard, we do commend Calvary Chapel and its origins. This existential angst that went through uh, modern culture after the Second World War. It was actually there before the Second World War in France, but it came to America and to Britain after the Second World War, this this realization that life is empty. Jean-Paul Sartre, was most famous French existentialist, said, it's either Augustine or the abyss. You see the options? It's either Christianity or nothing, the abyss, the pit, the pit of nothingness. It's either Christ or chaos, C or C. It's either Christ or chaos. 
Okay, here's Sartre saying those are the options. They're the only two options before us. So what did Sartre choose? He says, I choose the abyss. I choose chaos. I reject Augustine. I reject Christ. The existential affirmation to affirm nothingness in the face of man's limitation, namely death. Because, you see, existentialism couldn't answer the problem of death. That's what gave the existentialist the heebie-jeebies. They didn't know what to do. So here comes Sartre, you know, rolling the dice and betting on abyss and chaos and saying, I'd rather have nothing than something. All right? You've got the courage of your convictions, but you see, that's the triumph of nihilistic or meaningless emptiness. The reaction against that, that is in terms of the philosophical reaction, linguistic phenomenology, etc. The reaction against that didn't really give any meaning beyond the abyss per se. But what it did was it began to turn the meaning inwardly to self-definition, to the postmodern affirmation of all meaning is how I define meaning for myself. Now, the downward side of this postmodernism is, of course, renegade atheism. And you're seeing more of it increasingly uh, penetrate into our culture. It's becoming, in fact, in fact quite militant. <clears throat> All right. The, the meaning that they want is a meaning that they define, and they don't want any notion of God in the discussion. This is classic ancient paganism. This is what we've done. We've come full circle. We're coming full circle to old Greco-Roman paganism. And that's what I've said on your second sheet, a summary of idolatry as paganism. Idolatry is paganism. And I leave that for your uh, meditation, but I want now to turn to the second chapter of Jeremiah, which we have dealt with only generally in terms of this major issue of idolatry. And I want to step back and have us consider the narrative biblical theological paradigm of Jeremiah 2. When we looked at the first chapter of the book of this prophet, we noticed that there was a dialogue between God and the prophet Jeremiah. God called this predestined mouthpiece out of heaven, a call which would result in an antithesis, that is, a tension hidden in the plot sequence of God's story with the nation of Judah. Jeremiah was going to be drawn into the antithesis of God's plot narrative with the story of the nation of Judah. Auspiciously, the Lord would watch over his word in the mouth of his prophetic spokesman. 
He would watch to see it blossom like an almond tree. Blossom as a foreshadowing of things to come. The word of God would blossom as a signal of a coming harvest. That was the auspicious promise of that call to the prophet. But then came the antithesis. Ominously in that first chapter, the Lord would put fire in the mouth of that prophet Jeremiah Fiery words of destruction, of breaking down, of uprooting and scattering. The coming harvest was a harvest of destruction. The destruction of Jerusalem and scattering of Judah to the nations. And what was both auspiciously and ominously signaled in that first chapter narrative was to be embodied. It was to be embodied in the life of the prophet Jeremiah. He would find his narrative biography divided antithetically, polarized between the promising word of God and the ominous word of the Lord. Jeremiah himself would be a reflection of the ambivalence of the nation and the city. The word of the Lord goes forth from his mouth in power. The curse of an unbelieving audience nation is visited upon his person. He will be uprooted. He will be cast down. He will be overthrown with hatred and brutality. He will nearly be destroyed with death threats from his very own people. Jeremiah will be drawn into the antithesis of the narrative. The narrative antithesis of chapter 1 draws the prophet into the divine story, the story of God the Lord and his people. Jeremiah the prophet at the center of the narrative antithesis 626 to 586 B.C. Now chapter 2. Chapter 2 contains another narrative dialogue. This time, a dialogue between God and the nation, the nation of Judah. This dialogue is sandwiched by a marriage narrative. The bookends of God's first conversation with the nation of Judah contains a marriage motif. Chapter 2, verse 2, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. That's the bookend of the second chapter. But this marriage motif spans the origin of the endearing betrothal and the description of the current 7th century B.C. state of wedlock. What is the story of this marriage which is launched with the bridegroom's betrothals at the outset of the sojourn pilgrimage of this bride and groom in chapter 2, verse 2? The outset of the pilgrimage sojourn of this bride and groom inaugurated in the wilderness. In the wilderness. 
What is the story of this marriage? In chapter 2, at its inauguration, it is the story of adultery on the part of the bride. Adultery via idolatry. The marriage sojourn, which was born out of a mighty, loving, and gracious act of redemption, salvation from bondage to the Egyptian whoremasters, that wondrous supernatural act of grace signed in the blood of the Lamb bridegroom, that Exodus love has been repaid, has been betrayed with adultery, fornication, prostitution to idols, prostitution for idols, prostitution with idols. Other spouses than the omnipotent Lord who redeemed and rescued his bride, the omnicompassionate Lord who carried his bride through the wilderness, the omniconsummate Lord who settled his bride in a land of milk and honey, this Lord has been rejected for nothings, for empty nothings, for empty and vile nothings who exploit and abuse and violate the body of his once beloved bride and wife. Now, beginning in chapter 2, the narrative voice of the prophet Jeremiah reprises the story of this national adultery. The plot narrative has reached its climax in his 7th century B.C. day, and the prophet, like his Lord, will find himself and his word rejected, betrayed, prostituted in a national death wish, a national death wish for destruction by reason of the bride's idolatrous adultery. The bookends of the initial narrative dialogue between God and Judah sandwich the tale of apostasy. The tale of chapter 2, verse 2 to 3, verse 5, is the tale of idolatrous apostasy. A tale which draws the story of Jeremiah to its conclusion. The conclusion is destruction, wrath, judgment, fiery judgment, wrath, and destruction. The prophet will experience all of it. He will witness the repudiation of the marriage bond by God. He will witness the repudiation of the marriage bond by the Lord, by the Savior who will become his own antithesis. He will become the destroyer, the angel of death sweeping over the land of Judah. A land in which there is no blood upon the doorposts, no redeeming blood upon the lintels, no blood that will avail in the day of the Lord's fierce anger, no blood but the blood of the sinners themselves. For the real tragedy of this story 
is that these sinners would avail themselves of no blood to substitute for their own because they boasted in the power of their own blood, their bloodline, and the power of the blood they had spilled on altars to Baal, Chemosh, Moloch, and a hundred other pagan deities who demanded the blood of babies and infants. What would wash away this blood? Nothing but the blood of Jerusalem and Judah, 586 B.C. And the prophetic narrative, Jeremiah's biography will end. Jeremiah's biography will end in the place where the story of the marriage began. The prophet will return to Egypt at the end of this book back to the beginning of the narrative drama, back to Egypt, to Egypt, to wait, to die, to die waiting for another prophet to come up out of Egypt, another prophet to come up out of Egypt, and inaugurate an exodus of salvation once and for all. Another prophet to inaugurate a pilgrimage never to be adulterated by the temptation of the land in between, the wilderness land in between, the land of honeymoon and marital sojourn, a sojourn consummated in permanent rest. Ah, permanent rest in union forever between bride and groom in a paradise land, a paradise land of no Adultery, no idolatry, no spiritual prostitution, no apostasy, no divorce, because the blood which does avail is the blood of the bridegroom himself, poured out to redeem the life to redeem the story, to redeem the narrative of his bride. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, the blood of the eschatological Jeremiah, who is the eschatological Lamb of God. The structure of these first two chapters is a narrative brilliance. It projects the story of the end of the age in itself. But in addition to portraying this exodus 
and mighty act of grace. It also demonstrates the consequence of that exodus, which was God's clash with the gods of Egypt. God's clash with the idols of Egypt. God's clash with the principalities and the powers and the rulers of the darkness of that age. The exodus into the wilderness and the betrothals in the desert is an act unto redemption and salvation. It is the mighty act of God and his grace in the Old Testament. Everything is anchored in that gracious act for the history of this nation. But in addition to that mighty act of grace, God in his descent upon Egypt descends in judgment upon that idolatry, judgment upon those gods of that pagan land. God unleashes the horrors of his plagues in contradiction and condemnation of those gods. Every one of them, every one of those plagues is directed against a god of the Egyptian pantheon. He lays them in the dust. He turns their god water to blood. They worshiped that Nile. They thought it was a god. He turned it into stinking blood. So not only is this a mighty act of the demonstration of God's redeeming grace, this is a mighty act of God's demonstration of his judgment against the principalities and powers of the sin and iniquity of this age. And that conflict goes on. That conflict goes on. It is the pagan idolatry of this present evil age, which is indebted and in bondage to the principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age. The powers of the air. That is the battle that you and I are in. That is the ongoing clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. When Jesus hung upon that tree, he triumphed over those principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age because he is the eschatological bridegroom of his grace-redeemed people. The story goes on until the final day when that bridegroom comes as the Lamb of the wrath of God. And he will slay forever those powers of darkness and cast them forever into the pit of hell and into his kingdom will come all of those who worship God in spirit and in truth. The bride of heaven will come. But every idolater will be cast out.
every adulterer will be shut out of that city. Every fornicator will be barred from that paradise land. Every self-centered idolater will find no place in that city where the bride and the bridegroom are the center of the story. Jeremiah tells you in his narrative what has been, what is, and what is about to come. God grant the church eyes to see before the fire which destroys comes. Let's pray. Your dialogue with your idolatrous people, Lord, was not an exercise in rhetoric. It was a direct revelation and interrelation of yourself with a disobedient and sinful nation. It draws us into the realization that that... (coughs) which you despise and hate with a holy hatred is the worship of the creature rather than you yourself, the creator. The abuse and refusal to avail oneself of the blood of your son and the ongoing clash between the powers of darkness and evil and the kingdom of your Christ. You allowed us to hear the words of Jeremiah in their terror and in their invitation. You have allowed us to hear the words of the greater than Jeremiah in their terror and invitation. And we pray that your elect sons and daughters in this age may hear the word that you have spoken through Jeremiah and through Jeremiah's Lord. And so may escape the wrath to come. We bless you for this story and for the fact that by your grace we have been drawn into the end of it from the beginning. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.